Well, it's really good to see all of you. Just missed the last two Sundays, and I always miss everybody. And it is especially good to come back after this time away. But thank you. Because of those two Sundays I was gone, I was able to uh, go camping with my four oldest boys for 10 days up in the mountains. So we do that every year. Enjoyed that. I'm sure you'll hear some stories in weeks to come. It also gave me the opportunity for my annual mustache growing. (laughs) So that was fun. My wife required I not subject all of you to that today, so I had to shave that off yesterday, but I do have a picture if you'd like to see it later. (laughs) It was pretty cool. I did notice parents pulling their children in closer when I'd walk by, though. (laughs) I don't know what that was all about. So Kristen said, you will shave that off, and I did. Before I preach this morning, would you please bow your heads and pray with me? Our Father in heaven, thank you for these times that we have on this earth to be together as your people and open up your word together and read it together. God, would you help us to understand everything that there is for us to understand here, and will you take your words and your truth and apply it to our hearts today so that we would become more pleasing to you, help us to honor you. We know that you've created us and that you have created us to to live for you and God, you know that we want to live for us, and I want to live for myself, and I don't want to live for you. I need your help, God. So would you help us again today and remind us how small we are and how big you are and how great you are so that our hearts don't feel like they have to honor you and worship you, but so that our hearts want to honor you and worship you. And so we need you to do that miracle in our hearts. Help all of us as we grow in this to give you the praise that you deserve. And we ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So three weeks ago, we read together the first 11 verses of John chapter 18. Maybe some of you were here and you remember that. There, if you do remember, it was night. And Jesus was in a garden with 11 of his 12 disciples, and he was there praying. And then in walked the missing disciple, right? Because there was 12. He was there with 11. The 12th one, whose name was Judas, he walked in, and he had with him officers and soldiers And they were there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Okay, why are they all there with lanterns and torches and weapons in the middle of the night when Jesus is just there with 11 men praying? Well, they were there to arrest him. 
And Judas was the one who was there leading them. He was the one who was from the inside of those who were closest to Jesus. And so he betrayed Jesus and was there to hand him over. Peter got defensive of Jesus, you remember? He took a sword and cut a guy's ear off. But the arrest of Jesus was inevitable because they were, they were severely outnumbered. So the writing was on the wall. It was, it was clear how it was going to end. And that brings us to verse 12. That brings us to our text today. We'll look at verses 12 through 27. It begins where we left off in the garden. It's night. It's cold. And Jesus is standing before his betrayer. And a small army of the men who are there to arrest him. And and here's what we find in verses 12 through 27. Here's one way to look at it. What we find in verses 12 through 27 is, is two trials or two interrogations. There is a trial of Jesus and there is the trial of Peter. Jesus is going to be interrogated and Peter is going to be interrogated. We have a trial of Jesus before the high priest. And we're going to have a trial of Peter before the servants of the high priest. And the result is going to be that Jesus will tell the truth to the high priest and Peter will lie to the servants of the high priest. So look at these verses with me. Look how it's broken down. By John. John is going to take these two trials, the trial of Jesus and the trial of Peter, and he's going to he's going to weave them together. So he's going to give you a scene here, and then he's going to give you a scene there, and then he's going to come back and give you another scene there, and then he's going to go back and give you another scene here. So verses 12 through 14, you could say is Jesus before the high priest, part one. And then the scene shifts in verses 15 through 18. And you have Peter before the servants, part one. And then it shifts back. You see, you even have paragraph breaks probably in your Bible. Then the scene shifts again, verses 19 through 24 is Jesus before the high priest, part two. And then John shifts it again, verses 25 through 27. And you have Peter before the servants, Part two. So he doesn't just tell you what happened to Jesus and what happened to Peter. He weaves them together. And he does that for a reason that will become clear. He's going to contrast the truth-telling of Jesus with the lying of Peter. And we're going to see how Jesus does on trial. And that's going to be contrasted with how Peter does on trial. And so John emphasizes that by going back and forth and weaving them together, okay? So we're going to read through it. And as we read through it, I give you this advice. As we read through it, I would advise you to watch Peter. I think our lesson or our lessons to be learned here 
are going to be are going to be learned if we pay close attention to Peter. So think about what you know about Peter already. Maybe think about what you know has already happened to Peter between Jesus and Peter up until this point. If you don't remember, that's okay, because we'll go over some of it again. But have all that in your mind. Here we are in the garden at night. Here's Jesus. Here's Peter. Watch closely what Peter does. And I think some of you will relate to Peter. I think some of you are going to relate to Peter. And so it, it should be helpful. So let's start with verse 12, verses 12 through 14. Here's the trial of Jesus, part one. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Now, can you believe they actually arrested Jesus? Is it hard for you to believe after what they had just witnessed that they actually bound up and arrested Jesus? When Jesus said his name, they all lost their footing and fell down. And then, Luke tells us, after Peter sliced the ear off of one of the soldiers, Jesus picked up the ear and magically reattached it to the man's head. And then, they put him in handcuffs. They arrested him. I'm not sure it's true when we say things like seeing is believing. If only I could see. If only if God would do a miracle for me. God would do a miracle before me. Then I would believe. And I don't think that's the problem. This would seem to be another example of just how, how hard the human heart is. What I mean by that is how resistant to believing in and following and honoring God the human heart is. You can even stand before Jesus himself, have him say his name and fall down, and then watch him magically reattach an ear to someone's head, and you still deny him. So they arrested him. Verse 13. First, they led him to Annas. For he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year. It was Caiaphas who had advised the Jews that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. So only John, out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, who all give their accounts of the gospel, John is unique, and John is the only one that reports this preliminary interrogation by Annas. So you'll only find this here in John. And we'll get to Caiaphas later. Jesus will go to Caiaphas next, and we'll read about that in weeks to come. All we're 
told here is we're reminded of what Caiaphas said back in chapter 11, verses 49 through 53, when Caiaphas was meeting with some Jewish officials and he said, the best thing for us to do with this revolutionary, with this Jesus, is figure out how to put him to death. So it was his idea. It was his plan. So we'll get to Caiaphas more later. But for now, first, in these verses, 13 and 14, Jesus is taken to Caiaphas's wife's father, okay, to his father-in-law. Before he's taken to Caiaphas, the high priest, he's taken to Annas, who is his father-in-law. So who is Annas? Because we're not told a lot here. So who is Annas? And in a few more verses, you'll have another question. And the question you'll have in a few more verses is, well, who's the high priest? Is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? And the reason you're going to have that question is because, look, verse 13 calls Caiaphas the high priest. But then in verse 19, Annas is called the high priest. So which one? They're both called the high priest by John. So is it Annas or is it Caiaphas? And the answer is sort of both. Annas was the high priest and Caiaphas is the high priest. So Annas was high priest from the year 6 to the year 15. And Caiaphas is high priest at this moment in the years 18 to 36. But Annas was deposed by the Romans from his position as high priest, and he was replaced because the Romans, who are in control, right, over the Jews now, the Romans didn't like the idea of one man having that much power for that long a period of time. Because the appointment for a high priest was how long? Lifetime. It was a lifetime appointment. So what the Romans did is they kept deposing the high priests. And they'd take one down and they'd put one up. And they'd take one down and they'd put one up. Well, Annas was viewed by many at this time, though he was not actually the high priest at this moment. His son-in-law was. Annas was seen as a sort of power broker behind the high priesthood. He was seen as the wealth and the power and the control behind it, so much so that many still referred to him as the high priest, like John will in verse 19. He maintained throughout his life tremendous influence over that office of the high priesthood, Annas did. And one of the ways that he maintained that influence was, if you look at the history books, five of his sons, a grandson, and his son-in-law here, were all high priests at one point or another. So you see what's going on. Annas, the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and the father of those other five high priests, he's pulling the strings. He's the power behind the position, and many still saw him as the high priest. So there's Jesus, and that's who he's being dragged before right now. And that concludes the first scene of the trial of Jesus. 
So now the scene shifts. In verse 15, the scene shifts to the trial of Peter. So here is part one of this interrogation of Peter, not by the big high priest, but by a little servant. Verse 15. Simon Peter followed Jesus, and so did another disciple. So Peter's off to a good start. Remember, the other disciples all fled. So Peter's not running away. He's following, he's from a distance, but he's following Jesus, Peter is. Peter and, and one other disciple. He's called here in verse 15, another disciple. Then he's called the other disciple. He's called that disciple. Well, who was this other disciple? It's Peter and one other disciple. The rest have fled. So who's this other guy? We're going to see that he's able to walk right into the courtyard of the, the high priest because he was known to the family of the high priest. We are, we're also going to see that he was able to get Peter in. So he has some kind of relationship. He has some kind of influence. Well, without going into too much detail, the way this disciple is identified, in other words, he's, he's kept anonymous that most likely means that it's the author of this book because that's how he identifies himself, John does, throughout this book. So this is probably John who is here with Peter. That's also going to explain how as we read on, you're going to have these eyewitness sort of details come up because John's writing the book. So it's probably John who's there with Peter. He's, he's the other disciple. So the second part of verse 15. Since that disciple was known to the high priest, he entered with Jesus into the courtyard of the high priest. But Peter stood outside at the door. And I'll just say this. Peter should have stayed there. Peter should have stayed there outside the courtyard. He was too weak to get any closer. Watch. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the servant girl who kept watch at the door and brought Peter in. And this is not going to go well for Peter. Peter does not have the strength to be in the courtyard. Peter cannot resist the temptation of the courtyard. Peter is, we're going to see, he's proud. Not the good kind of pride. He's proud and he is overestimating his abilities. So he gets into the courtyard and then verse 17. The servant girl at the door said to Peter, 
you also are not one of this man's disciples, are you? He said, I am not. So here it begins. Peter's backsliding. Peter's denying of Christ. Peter's failure. All four gospel authors record this sad event. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They all tell us about Peter's denial. It was a big deal in the early church. Word got out. Verse 18, now the servants and officers had made a charcoal fire. There's one of those eyewitness details. A charcoal fire. There's only one other place there will be a charcoal fire. It's very interesting. We'll get there in chapter 21. Because it was cold and they were standing and warming themselves, Peter also was with them standing and warming himself. So Peter's there warming himself around a fire, denying Christ while Jesus is on trial. So what just happened? I mean, what just happened to Peter? Hours before this, just hours before this, Peter was saying, I will lay down my life for you, Jesus. I'll do anything for you. And here he denies him. And this is not a soldier that's questioning Peter. It's not the high priest that's questioning Peter. This is a gatekeeper. This is a, a servant girl, we're told. And it's not like she even asks him in an intimidating way. Like, you're not with this criminal, are you? She actually sounds more sympathetic in the way she asks Peter if he knows Jesus. But he caves. Big bad Peter, right? Big bold Peter. And he crumbles here. One minute, he's drawing his sword against an army in defense of Jesus. And next he is, according to Johannes Brentius, he says, frightened out of his Christian profession and driven into lying by one woman. Augustine said, Behold that most firm pillar of the church, touched but by one breath of danger, trembles all over. Where is now that boldness of promising, that confident vaunting of himself? And I'm sure Peter said to himself, right after he said, I am not. Why did I just say that? Why did that come out of my mouth? What did I just do? J.C. Ryle said, Love made him ashamed to run away and hide himself. Cowardice made him afraid to show his colors and stick by his Lord's side. 
Hence, he chose a middle course. The worst, as it happened, that he could have followed. After being self-confident when he should have been humble and sleeping when he ought to have been praying, he could not have done a more foolish thing than to flutter around the fire and place himself within reach of temptation. It teaches the foolishness of man when his grace is weak. No prayer is more useful than the familiar one, lead us not into temptation, and Peter forgot it here. So he loved Jesus too much to run away, but he loved Jesus too little to stick by his side. And so he plays a sort of game here. Well, he's not running away from Jesus, but he's also not sticking by his side. And he can't handle it, and he caves into temptation. So that's, that's scene one of Peter's trial. And so now what does John do? going to contrast it. He shifts the scene back to part two of Jesus before the high priest. Verse 19. The high priest then questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. So that's the line of questioning or the lines of questioning. Annas wants to know about His followers, he wants to know about his teaching. Who are your disciples? Where are they? How many are they? What are their names? And what have you been saying? How will Jesus respond? Verse 20. Jesus answered him. I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple where all Jews come together. I have said nothing in secret. Why do you ask me? Ask those who have heard me what I said to them. They know what I said. So did you notice that Jesus completely ignores one line of Annas' interrogation? The high priest is questioning him about his disciples and his teaching. And Jesus says nothing about his disciples. Now, why do you think that is? Do you remember what Jesus said in verses 8 through 9? Look back up with me. Jesus answered, verse 8, I told you that I am he, so... If you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. So Jesus is still determined to protect his disciples. His fleeing disciples. So he gives them nothing on the disciples. But he does respond to the line of questioning regarding his teaching, sort of. He doesn't say much, does he? He basically confesses that the heart of everything that he's had to say was given publicly. 
The heart of his message has been delivered publicly. So they could ask any of the thousands that had heard him teach. Which is why he said, I have spoken openly to the world. I have always taught in synagogues and in the temple. I have said nothing in secret. So that's his response. What was the result of him responding to the questioning of the high priest? Verse 22. When he had said these things, one of the officers standing by struck Jesus with his hand. So the abuse of Jesus is now starting. And what did this officer say? Is that how you answer the high priest? Jesus answered him, If what I said is wrong, bear witness about the wrong. But if what I said is right, why do you strike me? Now, all Jesus is doing there is appealing for a fair trial. First century Jews had volumes written on Jewish justice. And what's happening with Jesus here is clearly an illegal interrogation. This is not how things were to be done. They know that. It's why it's being done under the cover of night in the backyard of Annas. So Jesus knows that. They know that. And so he confronts them. First of all, you were never supposed to question the defendant. A case against the defendant was to be built on the foundation of witnesses. And you were to question first witnesses that were for the defendant, followed only then by questioning witnesses against the defendant. But no direct questioning of the defendant, and that's what they're doing here. And then, in the middle of the interrogation, Jesus is slapped in the face. Also illegal. So Annas recognizes, though, that he's getting nowhere with Jesus. And so verse 24, Annas then sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. Okay, so John now shifts the scene one last time. And he's going to take us back to the fire for the second part of Peter's trial. It's going to wrap up the text that we're looking at today. Now, hopefully at this point, as we're studying through this, this this interweaving of these two trials by John is is being made clear to you. You see how John is weaving these two trials together. And hopefully you're experiencing, as we read, the dramatic effect that is intended in that. So that you feel the weight of this. Trial of Jesus, part one. Trial of Peter, part one. Trial of Jesus, part two. And now finally, the end of this trial of Peter. R.E. Brown said, 
John has constructed a dramatic contrast wherein Jesus stands up to his questioners and denies nothing, while Peter cowers before his questioners and denies everything. That's the point of this interweaving. So here's our final sad scene. It's a very sad scene. Verse 25. Now Simon Peter was standing and warming himself. So they said to him, You also are not one of his disciples, are you? He denied it and said, I am not. One of the servants of the high priest, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, asked, Did I not see you in the garden with him? Peter again denied it. And at once a rooster crowed. It's a sad scene, isn't it? Three times in his Lord's greatest hour of need, he denied even knowing him. So I'd like to think about this and ask this question again. What happened here? How did Peter get to this point? So we'll need to back up just a bit. And I'm just going to go in order. As I read through this biblical account, here's what I see happening in the life of Peter leading up to this sad moment where he denies Jesus three times. Now, when I look at things like this, and when I read things like this, I don't know about you, but I'm always wanting to figure out what he did wrong before he did this really wrong so that I don't ever do that. That's what I try to do. And, and probably, no, definitely foolishly, I sometimes think if I can... Avoid doing those foolish things that he did, then I'll never screw up like that. Or I'll never fall like that. I'll never fail like that. So I find myself looking back and wanting to learn from Peter's mistake. Well, there's nothing wrong with us wanting to learn from Peter's mistake. And it's a great example here for that. So I think the first thing we find is that Peter faced this temptation in a state of unconfessed pride. Or another way of saying that, he was proud. So when Peter goes into this courtyard, he is in a state of unconfessed pride. He is thinking more highly of himself than he should. And I'm getting that from John chapter 13. So if you want to turn there, you can turn to John chapter 13. We'll read verses 36 through 38. 
And again, I'm saying that Peter is coming into this temptation in a state of unconfessed pride. Do you remember what happened in John chapter 13, verses 36 through 38? Simon Peter said to him back then, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. There's the pride. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. So, that's pride in chapter 13. Jesus is leaving them. It's becoming more clear that he is going to be killed. His disciples are figuring that out. And Peter stands up and basically says, over my dead body. I will lay down my life for you. I will do anything for you, Jesus. And what does Jesus do? He confronts him. He rebukes him. He says, no, you won't. So what is Jesus telling him? You're proud right now, Peter. What does that mean? You're thinking too highly of yourself. You have a self-inflated view of yourself. You are overestimating your abilities. You are self-confident. He's like fresh off some Tim Robbins seminar. And Peter's thinking, like we often do, I can do this. And from the time you're little, you all have been brought up in a culture that feeds you this. You can do this. You can do anything. You can finish it. You can do anything you set your mind to. Follow your heart. Follow your dreams. The only thing that can stop you is your lack of self-esteem or your lack of self-confidence. The sky is the limit. And so you and I are fed this from the time we are little. How great and wonderful and amazing and good our potential is. And so we grow proud. That's Peter. That's Peter. Well, I don't know about these other disciples. I can't speak for them. Yeah, they'll probably fail. But I, he's saying, I will lay down my life for you. So he overestimates his ability to resist temptation and do the right thing. And so what actually happens when he goes into the courtyard is he actualizes his potential. He becomes all that he could be. 
It's not what he expected. Because he was proud. Art Azurdia said, An inflated view of yourself will dull your sensitivity to the subtleties of the devil. So an overestimation of yourself, friends, is an underestimation of the power of sin. We are not as good and righteous as we think we are. And we are not as strong as we think we are. The Bible does not promote self-confidence. Ever. The Bible does not promote self-esteem. Ever. Now, it also doesn't promote the opposite, by the way. But the Bible promotes God-esteem. Esteeming God. Having incredible confidence, but not because of who you are, but because of who your God is. And those are very different things. So Peter got rebuked for that pride in John chapter 13. And as far as I can see, he never confessed it up until this point. He never repented from it. He never turned from it. And so it gets him into trouble. He should not have gone into that courtyard. You could say the disciples who fled were wiser than Peter was. They knew their limitations. They knew their weakness. They did not yet have the grace to go into that courtyard and stand by Jesus' side. They will later in life, and they will to the bitter end. And so will Peter at the very end. But he is not there yet. Jesus needs to die for him first. He's weak. So he faced this temptation in a state of unconfessed pride. That was his first problem. And you and I are going to fail if we're proud like that. A second thing, and I'm going to borrow from Matthew to get this one. But he also faced this temptation in the courtyard having neglected prayer. He neglected prayer, which you see is just just the dominoes falling because he was proud and self-confident. Do you remember what happened in Matthew chapter 26? Jesus is in the garden with his disciples, and he's going to pray. And he says to his disciples, he says to Peter, right, he catches him asleep while he's praying, and he says, wake up. And do you remember... It's very interesting what he said to Peter. Pray so that you do not what? Fall into temptation. And then he walked away. And then Jesus came back. And what was Peter doing? Sleeping. Why? I'm good. I got this. I will lay down my life for you. So he neglects prayer. Friends, if you neglect prayer, if you think you're stronger than you actually are, 
If you think you're better than you actually are, if you think you're more righteous than you actually are, and you neglect to pray for God's strength, you're going to fall. You're going to fall hard. That's what Peter did. And so he starts off great. The soldiers come and he pulls out his sword. See? See, Jesus? I'll lay down my life for you. I'm good. But then we see what just happened in chapter 18. So because of this pride, he doesn't pray. And then overconfident Peter, he walks right into the lion's den. And in this case, it was that courtyard before a little servant girl. It didn't look like a lion's den, and she sure didn't look like a lion. But she ate him up, didn't she? He walked right into temptation. Friends, don't be so proud that you walk right into temptation that you can't handle. Learn the lesson. How many times have I failed this way? I got this. I can handle this. And you fall into temptation again. Be careful. Know your weaknesses. Don't set yourself up for failure in your pride. But it's what Peter did. He was proud, self-confident. He was rebuked by Jesus. He did not repent. He did not pray. He walked right into this temptation. And then what happened? He failed. Miserably, he failed. Now here's where this could become a really bad sermon. This could become a really bad sermon if the next point is, so here are the keys to success. We could go there. We could do that. So don't do this. Don't be proud. And if you're proud, say sorry. And you pray more. And avoid temptation. And friends, if you do that, you will be successful. But you probably know that's not true. And friends, I can tell you that that you will fight your pride. You'll see your pride. You'll spot your pride. You'll confess your pride. You'll be open about your pride. You'll battle your pride. You will be prayerful about your weaknesses. You will do your best to avoid temptation. And friends, listen, and you will still fail. You will still fail. Now, how do I know that? Well, I know that from personal experience. That's how I know that 
to be certain. So I know my weaknesses. I know those pits that I need to avoid. And I'm prayerful about them. And still, I fail. And still, I sin. Still, I fall into those pits. Over and over again. So friends, you are going as Christians to fail. And you may fail like Peter failed. And maybe you already have failed like Peter failed. So there's more good news here. As we read about this trial of Jesus and this trial of Peter. The first bit of good news, which I've already said, that hopefully you find encouraging, is that the faithful fail. The faithful fail. Peter has failed here, but Peter is not a failure. He is one of God's beloved. And he is, even through this trial, he is faithful. And he will be faithful to the very end. And he will be faithful to the very end because the faithful are kept faithful by God himself. So the faithful will fail. Don't be surprised by your failures, friends. Don't be crippled by your failures. Don't sink into deep depression over your failures. The faithful fail. In Luke chapter 22, verse 31, I'll just read it to you. There was more that was said back in John chapter 13 between Peter and Jesus. John doesn't record all of it, but Luke records more of it. And I want you to listen to what Jesus said to Peter in Luke twenty-two. 31 about this whole Peter okay you're proud I'm rebuking you and then Peter goes and denies Jesus some of the background is given this is Jesus talking Simon Simon behold Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat but I prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. So, you, you see what I see? So, 
Peter is failing here in John chapter 18. He's failing big time, but he is still faithful. He is still loved by God and protected by God. Did you hear how this all went down? So Satan got permission from Jesus to tempt and drag Peter into this sin. And Jesus gave him permission. Does that sound like other things you've heard in the Bible? The power that Satan has is controlled by and overseen by God. Satan's on a leash. Remember that in Job? He had to get permission. Same thing here. So Satan has to get permission to do John 18 to Peter. And evidently Jesus gave him permission to tempt him and to to lead him into this failure. But then what did Jesus do? Jesus prayed for Peter. He prayed for Peter. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. So he's protected by Jesus. Yes, he failed. But ultimately, he remains faithful. And why does he ultimately remain faithful? Because Jesus prayed for him. Because he belongs to Jesus. And Jesus said, I will lose none that the Father has given me. Not only that, but failure is for your good. And he told Peter that, didn't he? When he said, and when you have turned again. So, you're going to fail, Peter, and then you're going to turn. What does that word turn? Repent. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Strengthen your brothers. You'll be stronger than you were before, Peter. You'll be a leader that you weren't before. And we'll see how Jesus does that in chapter 21. So the faithful fail, friends. So if you are a Christian here today, don't be surprised by your failures. So what do I do with my failures? Well, you're not going to avoid them. I'm not saying don't try. John says in 1 John, do not sin. But when you do sin, you're going to fail. So how do I handle these failures? Well, what did Peter go and do? Well, he left this scene and he went and he cried uncontrollably. He was filled with sorrow over his sin. He repented. He turned. He asked forgiveness. And he had what every Christian always has every time they ask Jesus for forgiveness. Forgiveness. And he was restored.
The church is full of failures. Full of failures. This is the difference. The church is filled with repentant failures. Repentant failures. Are you grieved by your failure? Are you moved to sorrow by your failure? Do you want to be reconnected to God and have restored relationship and reconciliation with God after you fail, after you sin? Then you go to him and you ask him for forgiveness and you have it just like Peter did. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the words that you had for us today. We thank you for the example that is set before us of Peter. Because many of us here can relate to Peter and relate to him and his failures. But we're so thankful, God, even more so for the example of Jesus here. We're so thankful, God, that this failure of Peter did not mean that he was faithless, that it did not mean that he was not one of your disciples, that he was not one of your children, but that different from Judas, God, he turned back to you and he was forgiven and restored. So God, I pray for the people here today. I pray for Christians here today who find themselves paralyzed and crippled by their failures. And God, I pray that those failures would not threaten their faith, that they would be reassured to know that this life is going to have failure. But God, I pray then that you would turn their hearts to you, that they would seek and have forgiveness from you for their good and for your glory. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.